Well, hi, welcome to Auckland TV. My name's Rowan, I'm one of the pastors here. And this week we get into the next section of the book of Judges. But before we get into it, I want to tell you a story. A number of years ago, I heard the story of a man who was crossing the Amagosa Desert in Nevada. And he ran into a problem where he'd run out of water. He's starting to die of thirst. But then he came across an abandoned shack and next to the shack was a well. And next to the well was a bottle of water with a note attached. It said these words, there's just enough water in the bottle to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. This well has never gotten dry. Even in the worst of times, pour the entire bottle of water into the top of the pump and then pump the handle quickly. After you've had a drink, refill the bottle for the next person who comes along. Now, let me ask you, what would you do? To prime the pump with the bottled water, it's an act of, of faith or of, of trust in the words of the note. But if you, if you trust the words on the note and prime your pump, then well, you should be, will you get the stuff back? <laughs> or if you trust your instincts and just drink the bottle of water, what happens then? See, faith is not just wishful thinking. Faith isn't blind. It's not just something you believe in when you've got nothing to go on. The word faith means to trust or to rely or to depend on something or someone. Now, historically, Christians are called people of the faith. And what we see in this next section of the book of Judges is a man whose faith wavers. And it raises the question for all of us, how much faith do you need? How much faith do you need? Well, the repeated sentence comes up again as we introduce to God's enemies who rule over Israel that they have again turned their backs on God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his forces was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth of the nations. The Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Here, the, the king of Canaan is an oppressor. His general is Sisera. That's a pretty sissy name, right? Sisera. But not when you've got 900 iron chariots. See, chariots were the stealth fighters of today. In New Zealand, we didn't really have any fighter jets. Sisera had an army of over 900 iron chariots. Like these guys are major players in the world military scene. They oppressed God's people Israel for 20 years. Finally, Israel then cry out to God. And amazingly, God listens. It just shows you how loving he is, how merciful the God of the universe is. If only we would cry out to him. God then raises up a judge like last time. But, but this time, the role is different. It's a split role. In chapter 4, verse 4, we meet Deborah. Now she's a prophetess, we're told, and she's judging Israel at that time. Now her judging looked like settling disputes with Israel, a little bit different to the judges before that led with military power. That's because we then meet Barak. Now it's not Barack Obama, but that's the same first name, right? He's, he's the military leader of God's people. Now usually the judge and the deliverer are the one person, like with Ehud. But here, we see they're divided. Deborah is a prophet. Now, like all true prophets, they point back to God's word, to what God had said in the past and what he is saying to people now. And Deborah points back to what God had said for Barak. Have a look at verse 6. Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I'll lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots and his army at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. 
Now, it's really important to note here, these aren't new words to Barak. This is what God had already said to him. God had already spoken to him and told him these words. God is reminding Barak through Deborah of his promises to, to Barak. Go, I will give them into your hands. It's a clear word of God to him. But Barak finds it hard to trust, to have faith in God's word. Look what happens in verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And here, Barak's faith is not strong. It's pretty weak. He doesn't think he can do it alone, right? And there's part of me that doesn't really blame him. I mean, would you send 10,000 soldiers out to try and catch 900 stealth fighters? Like, what do you think the likelihood is of, of going well? It's not going to end prettily. <laughs> Barak, he trusts God, but only a little bit. <laughs> I remember uh, when we were a bit younger and our kids were a bit younger, teaching them how to swim in the surf, in, in the big waves, not the small waves of the Auckland Bays, but the, but the bigger ones, right? Our kids could swim, but the waves there were so big. I remember one of our kids, whose name I won't mention, but they particularly wanted to go into the water. I knew their floaties would hold them. Um, this child knew she could swim or he could swim. I'm not giving away anything. <laughs> but they wouldn't go into the waves unless Sarah or I were with them. They'd scream and scream and then we'd hold their hand and they'd be like running in and they'd love it. You know, they'd be swimming around with us right next to them. I'd move away or Sarah would move away, even just a meter. And they'd be like, ah, help, I'm dying. <laughs> Here, our child trusted that she could swim, but only if I was close by. She, she had faith in my words, you could do this, but, but not, not a lot of it. <laughs> well, it's the same sort of thing here with Barak. He's like a screaming child. And because of his lack of faith in the word of God, he will lack any honour that would have been given to him. Listen to what Deborah says in verse 9. I will go with you, she said, but you will receive no honour on the road you are about to take because the Lord will tell, sell Sisera into a woman's hand. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. See, Barak would still win the battle. God would be faithful to his promise. He always is. But Barak would be stripped of the honour of the win. It would be given to a woman, which culturally was humiliating. The big military king of Israel or leader of Israel with his 10,000 men and the word of God needed a woman to deliver them from this foreign oppressor. Now, at this point, you assume the woman will be Deborah. But the question is, will it? They set off. Barak receives another word that Sisera would be given into his hands, and then it's on. These 900 still fighter chariots versus 10,000 men, but with their one true God. Barak's forces were no match for Sisera's, but Sisera and his chariots were no match for the true and living God. Now, one thing that's consistently clear throughout this whole episode is it is God who wins the battle. In verse 14 and 15, he hands over Sisera. We hear from chapter 5 that all their chariots get bogged because of a flash flood and God goes before Barak. And in verse 15, it's God is the one who destroys Sisera's army. They get smashed out, all of them, except one. Sisera flees on foot. He gets away. And we wonder what will happen. And as you're reading through chapter 4, we then get to this verse in verse 11. And it seems really odd. Look at it with me. Judges 4:11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobab. Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananim, which was near Kadesh. Now, I don't know if you found that weird, 
as weird as I did with the weird names that are in it. And you're like, how do I pronounce those? <laughs> Who knows? But what's weirder is, why is it here? Who is Heber the Kenite? Is he another pin-up boy like Othniel, the son of Kenaz, right? Is this, is this you know, one of Ken and Barbie? Is he a pin-up boy like that? Why is it here? Well, we look then at verse 12 and it just goes back to the action. It's like some random insert. But we get the answer to the question why it's here when we get to verse 17. Who will Barak's honour go to? Who will deliver Israel from Sisera? Which woman will it be? Will enter Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. She's an ally of Sisera. Her, her husband and King Jabin were mates, right? None of them are Israelites. Sisera turns up at this tent looking for safety, fleeing the judgment of Israel and Israel's God. And Jael is there. Like the true friend, she invites him in. And the whole action is kind of very soothing and calming. Come, my Lord, she says in verse 18. Come right in. Don't be afraid. Why does she say don't be afraid? It's an odd way to answer the door. Have you ever said that? Oh, welcome to my house. Come in. Don't be afraid. Well, maybe you should have been afraid. <laughs> he asks for a drink. He's been running. She acts hospitably by giving him some milk, not even some water. And then she covers him with a blanket. Kind of feels a bit fishy here. Almost as if Sisera thinks he's going to get more than he bargained for. But like Eglon last week, Sisera is only happy to oblige. Ooh, come in, a blanket, some milk. This is great, some lodging, some place to stay, and maybe more. But then the most significant words actually come out of the mouth of Sisera. Before he goes to sleep in his rest, hiding in the tent of this so-called friend, Sisera says in verse 20 of chapter 4, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. Now, the Hebrew here actually says, say, there is no one. We're about to see that those words would come true. By the time Barak captures up to Jael, there is no one there because Sisera is dead. Sisera unknowingly foretells and even commands his own destruction. And I've got to say, it, it's pretty ugly. The Bible here is more like a gladiator movie than the sound of music. <laughs> Right? It's real and it's raw. It's, it's graphic and, and fast-paced and it's shocking. While Sisera is sleeping, his friend JL takes a tent peg. She places the hammer in her hand. She comes quietly to Sisera, carefully, not wanting to wake him up. She rests the tent peg on his temple and lets fly with the hammer. And it's, it's, it's shocking. And, and it's not even left there. The, the writer tells us that the tent peg went through the temple of, of him into the ground. And then, just in case you weren't sure, it tells us, and he died. Right? Do not go camping with this woman. Do not go camping with her. Right? Jael, is a, is, she's an interesting piece of work. She's got contempt for Sisera. She had contempt for the Canaanites. Uh, she's meant to be on their side. She had contempt for her husband since you know, he was in good relations with the Canaanites. We've got no idea of her motivation for killing Sisera. We don't understand it at all. She just decides to put this tent peg through his temple. Yet it does show us one thing. God, he's able to use anyone to bring about his purposes. In the place of an Israelite warrior is a foreigner. And at that, a foreign woman. God will save his people. He will keep his promises and he uses all sorts of people to do it. All kinds of human motivations, not always good. But he brings about his purposes no matter what. 
If he can use JL and all her brokenness, he can use anybody. Have you seen the power of this God? He always brings his plans to fruition. There is nothing outside of his control. His word is faithful and true. You might feel as a Christian that you've got nothing to contribute. You know, how could God use me? What's the point? But here's the thing. It's got nothing to to do with what you or I feel like we can achieve or can't achieve. It's got everything to do with God and his plans. He wants to use us. He wants us to, to want him to use us. But don't for one second think that God's plans and purposes are dependent on your strength or mine or our skills or our ability and power. No, God won the war. It's God in verse 23 who defeats King Jabin through a human agent. Yes, but it's God who does it. Despite Barak's imperfect faith, despite an unlikely judge in Deborah, despite a foreign deliverer, God wins the war. Now, before we see what we can learn from Barak, I want to pause for a second and bring up an important topic, the topic of women and leadership. Primarily because the career of Deborah leads us to reflect on this subject. And often people come to here and say, look, here's a woman leading God's people. The passage tells us she's a prophetess, but she's more than that. She's a leader in Israel, God's leader in Israel. How does that affect the way we understand the role of women then and today? Well, the first thing to note is that this section of the Bible is narrative. It's a record of what happened. It describes what went on. Right? It's not a directive to go and do likewise. Women, please do not, the next time you go camping and a king drops by, go and grab a tent peg and a hammer. It will not end well for you. This is not a direction of what to do. Now, Judges 4 and 5 are written simply to tell us what happened. Now, they're not the example of what should happen. Deborah's leader of Israel is what happened, but it's not what should have happened. And the text is really clear about that. Barak was supposed to lead Israel into battle. And Deborah, as a, as a prophet of God, rightly and brilliantly pointed Barak to the word of God that he'd spoken previously to Barak. Deborah's military leadership and deliverance brought by a foreign woman, Jael, were all because Barak abdicated his responsibility to lead. Barak isn't leading God's people as he's been commanded to do, so Deborah steps in. Now, the general principle throughout the Bible is that Men are the ones God has tasked to be responsible for the leadership and safety of the family and of his people. It's the man's role to lead and to suffer the consequences for getting that wrong. In the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what happened. God gave Adam the the task of, of leading his wife and together with Eve to rule over all of creation. What happens? Creation, snake, leads woman to lead the man to disobey God. Who's responsible? Who does God go to in the garden? Adam. He was there the whole time and he said nothing. He didn't lead. He's the one who's responsible. Even though Eve ate of the apple or whatever fruit it was, the tree, um, she ate first. Here, Deborah has to step in because the men won't lead. Men, I want to encourage you to take this opportunity to think through how you might lead in your families. Uh, opening up the word, uh, leading by laying down your life, not saying you must do this or you must do that, but by sacrificially leading and within the church to stand up and lead so often. The problem isn't that women want to lead. The problem is that men won't. No, men, we need to hear the encouragement to lead and not be like Barak. But also notice, 
there are things here that that women, this woman that Deborah can't do. Deborah alone amongst the judges does not fight. She's not a warrior. She can't and ought not to lead this army. And she has to recruit someone else who has abilities that will complement hers, which she does admirably. And that's brilliant. The passage is clear. The role of men and women are not interchangeable in every area. The fact that a woman has to do the role of a man is a judgment on the man. (laughs) Now, the Old Testament maintains that women are equal in value and dignity and ability because they're created in God's image and and given dominion over God's creation. Men and women are done together. We're equal in God's image. Equality is found in the fact that we are made in his image, just like children are not less equal a human than than adults or parents. Uh, One is not greater worth than the other. Um, It's not because of their sex or anything to do with them. Their worth as children is tied up in that they are children of a parent, that they are human. Well, so it is with God. Our worth is that we are made in his image. And that's the same pattern we find in the New Testament as well. Men are given the role to be the head of the family and the head of the church family. But I just want to pick up on our culture a little here. I want to show you how the Bible's view of equality is far better than what many of us are led to think. See, we only conceive of equality in in the midst or in, in the mindset of sameness. When we think equality, we think we need to be the same. And you need to hear me say, God is the originator of the idea that all humanity are equal. You've got to hear that. But in that right pursuit of equality, we've worked hard to, process any, to, to suppress any notion that men and women are different. We think being equal means being the same. But there are huge differences between men and women. And that's a good thing. We're not the same. We think differently. Our brains are wired differently. Um, there's physical differences, which are great that there's differences. Uh, I can't carry a child. I didn't have to be there at the birth of my child. Sarah did. Now, I should have been there and I was there. That's okay. But I didn't have to be there. It's not how it was. When you couple that with the society we're in today that's driven so economically, where equality means I must have economic sameness, sameness in the same earning potential, the same productivity potential. If a woman wants to have children, at least to some extent, she won't have the same potential as a man. Motherhood brings a distinct disadvantage to the woman in regards to economic earning potential. We aren't the same. But the Bible has a much more sophisticated and powerful and rich presentation of humanity and equality than sameness. Don't be taken in by the current simplistic view of equality that that, that is just equality means the same. (laughs) Come back to the Bible and its richness, its celebration of life and bringing of life and of difference between men and women. If identity and value are not found in sameness, they're found in our maker and how he made us. I also want to speak for a moment on the way the Bible portrays women. Because sometimes we can think of women merely as as weak and and downtrodden. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that. You can't read the Bible and come away with a notion of womanhood that's weak and soft. The women of the Bible are strong. They're scary at times, capable, competent. Strong women through the Bible are celebrated and honoured and affirmed. See, Proverbs is a book about wisdom. And it ends in chapter 31 with a wise woman who's capable and competent and impressive 
noble character uh, of, of more worth than rubies. She's a worker who provides for her family and produces and creates and manages. I want to say the Bible, God, is more pro-women than any feministic movement has ever been or will ever be. I encourage you, don't be ashamed of God's view of men and women, but celebrate it. It's much better than, than our world's primitive and flat view of sameness. Well, what about the man Barak? When he arrives at the tent of Jael, Sisera's words come true for Barak as well. See, Sisera was a no one because he was dead. And now Barak is a no one because he didn't kill Sisera. He's a nobody. His honor has been taken away from him as God said it would because he didn't take God at his word. While he lost his honor, Barak is still delivered. What we see here is quite amazing and so encouraging. Imperfect faith, faltering faith, less than ideal faith. It's enough. Now, I can understand why Barak found it hard to take God at his word, right? They're still fighting chariots. It's serious stuff. The stakes are high. Gideon was similar. We'll see next week that he wanted to have a sign from, from God. God's word wasn't enough. Moses also found it hard. And so God gave him to Aaron to help. Barak only had a word. If you're anything like me, you'll find it hard to take God at his word as well. As doubts creep in, can I really trust my security, my comfort, my eternity? Can I trust that to God? I mean, do you ever wonder if, if God is going to do what he says? Will he, will he really look after me? Will he really provide for me like he does the birds of the field? Is his way really the best for me to live? Are you sure I'm not missing out? Can I really be happy living God's way? Are all the sacrifices I'm making for serving Jesus and living for his kingdom, are they worth it? I mean, when you lose your income, when, when situations change, and we're all in the middle of that right now, aren't we? Can I trust God to, to come through on his word, to, to stick to his promises for me? With my life in relationships, when, when everything looks like it's gone to custard, will I hear God's promise? Not that he promises to make life easy. He never promises that. Not this side of Jesus' return. But he does promise that all things will work together for the good of those who love God. Romans 8, 28. Do I take seriously his promise to build his church? That his church will be large, that people from every tribe and language and people and nation will be gathered around his throne at the end. And do I trust him in that? Do I trust that his word is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness? so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That if I trust him, that if I rely on Jesus, that he has taken away the penalty for my sin, that it's paid for fully. Those things we keep returning to, that we keep going back to and falling into, or those, those, those sins we keep trying to put away and struggle with, or all the things that we're not even aware of, that they're done, finished, paid for if we trust in Jesus. Do you trust that? Or maybe this idea of eternal life just sounds too good to be true. But right here with Barak, despite his faltering faith, what God says happens. All the way through the history of Israel, God keeps his promises. How many times has God failed to keep his promise to you? A clear promise. I'm not talking about things that we think, oh, you know, this is hard. God didn't promise me that life um, would get hard, but now it's getting hard. No, he doesn't say that. 
Now the clear promises of God have always come through. I haven't had one where he hasn't. The problem is not with God and his word, but with our doubt in it. God is trustworthy. Trust him. There is no one more trustworthy than him. No one. But here's the bit that's even more encouraging. Even imperfect faith is enough. Let me show you why. In Hebrews 11, the the writer catalogues the great ones of faith, of trust, of reliance in God. It lists the poster boys and girls of the faith. Listen to this. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then verse 32. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak. Sorry, did you say Barak? Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. 39, these were all commended for their faith. Barak is commended for his faith. He did doubt God's word and as a result had his honor removed, but he's held up as one of the big ones of faith. And what does that say about faith? Here's the point. It's not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. Barak's wavering faith was in the true and living God. He trusted God to provide the way to save him. What it shows is that the amount of faith we have isn't important. It's what the faith is in that's vital. And Barak had imperfect faith, but his faith was in God. And God was rock solid. Now my hunch is right now, all of us are sitting in a chair. We're exercising faith as we do that. Everyone at the moment, if you're sitting down, is trusting that the seat you are sitting in will hold you up. Some of you might have enormous amounts of faith and trust in the chair that you're sitting in or the couch or the beanbag or whatever it is. But the question is, what's holding you up off the ground right now? Is it the amount of faith you have in the chair? No. The amount of trust you have in the chair is irrelevant to you staying off the ground. As long as you put your trust in a chair that's trustworthy, that will be sufficient to hold you off the ground. What could be more trustworthy on the topic of life after death than the one who died and rose again for us? Who could be a better ruler of my life than the one who rules the universe? It's exactly what the writer of Hebrews shows us. For Barak and every one of those people in that list, God had planned something even better than the temporary rest they experienced, even more wonderful than the partial fulfillment of what they had there and then. They trusted God's promises and all those promises pointed to one deliverer, one saviour, one king. Hebrews 11 verse 39. Yet none of them received what God had promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So Hebrews 12 verse 2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. (laughs) Barak trusted in God. He trusted in God's promise to deliver him and all Israel from their enemies. And that promise was finally answered in and through Jesus. See, if Jesus didn't die for his sins, then Barak's faith would never have been fulfilled. The promise of deliverance would only have been partially complete. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection is ultimately how God would bring salvation, not just from our earthly enemies of Israel, but but salvation from death and the sin that causes it. 
when we see more clearly the deliverer God's word to Barak was pointing to, we've got an even surer saviour, an even clearer reason to have faith in God's word. Have you seen Jesus? The one who created the world and sustains the world came and died in our place. He loves us so much that he would offer his life for us. Friends, this God, this Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. Look at how he's kept his promises. Look at the massive cost that he's gone to to secure our forgiveness. It makes me so angry when people say he just didn't have enough faith. That's why that didn't happen. You needed to trust God more. Really? The amount of faith I have affects how trustworthy the thing my faith is in is? No. What matters is who that faith is in. What you have in front of you today is a word. It's a word from human history. It's a word that claims to be the very word of God. And it's a claim that if you take this message seriously, if you recognize that the, the subject of this message is the creator and king of the universe and you depend on him, you trust in Jesus' death in your place and you accept his rule of your life, then you will live forever. Forever. It's amazing, isn't it? The question isn't, do I have enough faith? But is my faith in the right person? Is my faith in Jesus? Trust him, won't you? Take him at his word and live the life he offers. Laugh and serve and share the great assurance of his death and resurrection and the assurance that brings. And if your faith depends on anything or anyone else apart from Jesus, can I urge you today, come to the only one who's died in your place and offers you life forever and trust him. Make him your king. Friends, God is in control and he always fulfills his promises. We can trust him no matter what. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you've shown your love for us in the person of Jesus. That despite our wavering faith, the times we don't trust you fully, we, we, we question and doubt that you hold us trusting in your son. Would you please show us afresh how trustworthy Jesus is and help us to place our lives in his hands. Help us not to, to waver or wander or put our faith in anything or anyone else, but to put our trust in you. We praise you and thank you that you are so faithful. And we ask that as we as a church move forward, that we would entrust ourselves to you and your work to be used by you to obey your word and to hold up Jesus as the king, the king of our lives and the king of the world, that people might see how amazing he is and repent and trust him. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.